Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hi, this week in medicine, we will be discussing. First we will be discussing articles in New England Journal of Medicine. Semaglutide and Cardiovascular Outcomes in Obesity Without Diabetes Background Semaglutide, a glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonist, has been shown to reduce the risk of adverse cardiovascular events in patients with diabetes. Whether semaglutide can reduce cardiovascular risk associated with overweight and obesity in the absence of diabetes is unknown. Methods In a multicenter, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, event-driven superiority trial, we enrolled patients 45 years of age or older who had pre-existing cardiovascular disease and a body mass index, the weight in kilograms divided by the square of the height in meters, of 27 or greater but no history of diabetes. Patients were randomly assigned in a 1 to 1 ratio to receive once weekly subcutaneous semaglutide at a dose of 2.4 mg or placebo. The primary cardiovascular endpoint was a composite of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal myocardial infarction, or non-fatal stroke in a time-to-first event analysis. Safety was also assessed. Results A total of 17,604 patients were enrolled. 8,803 were assigned to receive semaglutide and 8,801 to receive placebo. The mean, plus or minus, duration of exposure to semaglutide or placebo was 34.2 plus or minus 13.7 months, and the mean duration of follow-up was 39.8 plus or minus 9.4 months. A primary cardiovascular endpoint event occurred in 569 of the 8,803 patients, 6.5%, in the semaglutide group, and in 701 of the 8,801 patients, 8.0%, in the placebo group, hazard ratio, 0.80, 95% confidence interval, 0.72 to 0.90, p less than 0.001. Adverse events leading to permanent discontinuation of the trial product occurred in 1461 patients, 16.6%, in the semaglutide group in 718 patients, 8.2%, in the placebo group, p less than 0.001. Conclusions In patients with pre-existing cardiovascular disease and overweight or obesity but without diabetes, weekly subcutaneous semaglutide at a dose of 2.4 mg was superior to placebo in reducing the incidence of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal myocardial infarction or non-fatal stroke at a mean follow-up of 39.8 months. Efficacy and safety of an mRNA-based RSV-PREF vaccine in older adults Background 
respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, can cause substantial morbidity and mortality among older adults. An mRNA-based RSV vaccine, mRNA-1345, encoding the stabilized RSV prefusion F-glycoprotein, is under clinical investigation. Methods In this ongoing, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, phase 2-3 trial, we randomly assigned, in a 1-to-1 ratio, adults 60 years of age or older to receive one dose of mRNA-1345, 50G, or placebo. The two primary efficacy endpoints were the prevention of RSV-associated lower respiratory tract disease with at least two signs or symptoms and with at least three signs or symptoms. A key secondary efficacy endpoint was the prevention of RSV-associated acute respiratory disease. Safety was also assessed. Results Overall, 35,541 participants were assigned to receive the mRNA-1345 vaccine, 17,793 participants, or placebo, 17,748. The median follow-up was 112 days, range, 1 to 379. The primary analyzes were conducted when at least 50% of the anticipated cases of RSV-associated lower respiratory tract disease had occurred. Vaccine efficacy was 83.7%, 95.88% confidence interval, c. 66.0 to 92.2, against RSV-associated lower respiratory tract disease with at least two signs or symptoms and 82.4%, 96.36% C, 34.8 to 95.3, against the disease with at least three signs or symptoms. Vaccine efficacy was 68.4%, 95% C, 50.9 to 79.7, against RSV-associated acute respiratory disease. Protection was observed against both RSV subtypes, A and B, and was generally consistent across subgroups defined according to age and coexisting conditions. Participants in the mRNA-1345 group had a higher incidence than those in the placebo group of solicited local adverse reactions, 58.7% versus 16.2%, and of systemic adverse reactions, 47.7% versus 32.9%. Most reactions were mild to moderate in severity and were transient. Serious adverse events occurred in 2.8% of the participants in each trial group. Conclusions A single dose of the mRNA-1345 vaccine resulted in no evident safety concerns and led to a lower incidence of RSV-associated lower respiratory tract disease and of RSV-associated acute respiratory disease than placebo among adults 60 years of age or older. Recombinant or standard dose influenza vaccine in adults under 65 years of age. Background Quadrivalent recombinant influenza vaccines contain three times the amount of hemagglutinin and protein as standard dose egg based vaccines, and the recombinant formulation is not susceptible to antigenic drift during manufacturing. Data are needed on the relative effectiveness of recombinant vaccines as compared with standard dose vaccines against influenza-related outcomes in adults under the age of 65 years. Methods In this cluster-randomized observational study, Kaiser Permanente Northern California facilities routinely administered either a high-dose recombinant influenza vaccine, flublok quadrivalent, 
or one of two standard dose influenza vaccines during the 2018 to 2019 and 2019 to 2020 influenza seasons to adults 50 to 64 years of age, primary age group, and 18 to 49 years of age. Each facility alternated weekly between the two vaccine formulations. The primary outcome was influenza, A or B, confirmed by polymerase chain reaction, PCR, testing. Secondary outcomes included influenza A, influenza B, and influenza-related hospitalization outcomes. We use Cox regression analysis to estimate the hazard ratio of the recombinant vaccine as compared with the standard dose vaccines against each outcome. We calculated the relative vaccine effectiveness as 1 minus the hazard ratio. Results The study population included 1,630,328 vaccinees between the ages of 18 and 64 years, 632,962 in the recombinant vaccine group and 997,366 in the standard dose group. During this study period, 1,386 cases of PCR-confirmed influenza were diagnosed in the recombinant vaccine group, and 2,435 cases in the standard dose group. Among the participants who were 50 to 64 years of age, 559 participants, 2.00 cases per 1,000, tested positive for influenza in the recombinant vaccine group as compared with 925 participants, 2.34 cases per 1,000, in the standard dose group, relative vaccine effectiveness, 15.3%, 95% confidence interval, C, 5.9 to 23.8, P equals 0 0.002. In the same age group, the relative vaccine effectiveness against influenza A was 15.7%, 95% C, 6.0 to 24.5, P equals 0 0.002. The recombinant vaccine was not significantly more protective against influenza-related hospitalization than were the standard-dose vaccines. Conclusions The high-dose recombinant vaccine conferred more protection against PCR-confirmed influenza than an egg-based standard-dose vaccine among adults between the ages of 50 and 64 years. Three-year overall survival with Tebentafusp and metastatic uveal melanoma. Background Tebentafusp, a T-cell receptor bispecific molecule that targets glycoprotein 100 and CD3, is approved for adult patients who are positive for HLA-A201 and have unresectable or metastatic uveal melanoma. The primary analysis in the present phase 3 trial supported the long-term survival benefit associated with the drug. Methods we report the three-year efficacy and safety results from our open-label, phase 3 trial in which HLA-A02-01 positive patients with previously untreated metastatic uveal melanoma were randomly assigned in a 2 to 1 ratio to receive tebentafusp, tebentafusp group, or the investigator's choice of therapy with pembrolizumab, ipilimumab, or decarbazine, control group, with randomization stratified according to the lactate dehydrogenase level. The primary endpoint was overall survival. Results At a minimum follow-up of 36 months, median overall survival was 21.6 months in the Tebentafus group and 16.9 months in the control group, hazard ratio for death, 0.68, 95% confidence interval, 0.54 to 0.87. The estimated percentage of patients surviving at 3 years was 27% in the Tebentafus group and 18% in the control group. 
The most common treatment-related adverse events of any grade in the Tebentafus group were rash, 83%, pyrexia, 76%, pruritus, 70%, and hypotension, 38%. Most Tebentafus-related adverse events occurred early during treatment, and no new adverse events were observed with long-term administration. The percentage of patients who discontinued treatment because of adverse events continued to be low in both treatment groups, 2% in the Tebentafus group and 5% in the control group. No treatment-related deaths occurred. Conclusions This three-year analysis supported a continued long-term benefit of Tebentafus for overall survival among adult HLA-02-01 positive patients with previously untreated metastatic uveal melanoma. Next article from Journal of American Medical Association. Importance implemented in 18 regions, Comprehensive Primary Care Plus, CPC Plus, was the largest U.S. primary care delivery model ever tested. Understanding its association with health outcomes is critical in designing future transformation models. Objective to test whether CPC Plus was associated with lower health care spending and utilization and improved quality of care. Design, setting, and participants' difference in differences regression models compared changes in outcomes between the year before CPC Plus and five intervention years for Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries attributed to CPC Plus and comparison practices. Participants included 1,373 Track 1, 1,549-585 beneficiaries, and 1,515 Track 2, 5,347-499 beneficiaries primary care practices that applied to start CPC Plus in 2017 and met minimum care delivery and other eligibility requirements. Main outcomes and measures The pre-specified primary outcome was annualized Medicare Part A and B expenditures per beneficiary per month, PBPM. Secondary outcomes included expenditure categories, utilization e.g., hospitalizations, and claims-based quality of care process and outcome measures, e.g., Recommended tests for patients with diabetes and unplanned readmissions. Results among the CPC Plus patients, 5% were black, 3% were Hispanic, 87% were white, and 5% were of other races, including Asian-slash-other Pacific Islander and American Indian. 85% of CPC Plus patients were older than 65 years and 58% were female. CPC Plus was associated with no discernible changes in the total expenditures, track 1, $1.10 $1.10 PBPM, 90% C, minus $4.30 to $6.60, P equals 0.74, track 2, $1.30, 90% C, minus $5 to $7.70, P equals 0.73, and with increases in expenditures including enhanced payments, track 1, $13, 90% C, $7 to $18, P less than 0.001. Track 2, $24, 90% C, $18 to $31, P less than 0.001. Among secondary outcomes, CPC Plus was associated with decreases in emergency department visits starting in year 1, and in acute hospitalizations and acute inpatient expenditures in later years. Associations were more favorable for practices also participating in the Medicare Shared Savings Program and independent practices. CPC Plus was not associated with meaningful changes in claims-based quality of care measures. 
Conclusions and relevance Although the timing of the associations of CPC plus with reduced utilization and acute inpatient expenditures was consistent with the theory of change and early focus on episodic care management of CPC plus, CPC plus was not associated with a reduction in total expenditures over five years. Positive interaction between CPC plus and the shared savings program suggests transformation models might be more successful when provider cost reduction incentives are aligned across specialties. Further adaptations and testing of primary care transformation models, as well as consideration of the larger context in which they operate, are needed. Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine Development and Validation of the Conhart Population-Based Laboratory Prediction Models for Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease Background Prediction of Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease, ESCADE, in primary prevention assessments exclusively with laboratory results may facilitate automated risk reporting and improve uptake of preventive therapies. Objective to develop and validate sex-specific prediction models for ESCADE using age and routine laboratory tests and compare their performance with that of the pooled cohort equations, PCEs. Design Derivation and validation of the Conhart, Cardiovascular Health and Ambulatory Care Research Team, Lab Models Setting Population-based cohort study in Ontario, Canada Participants a derivation and internal validation cohort of adults aged 40 to 75 years without cardiovascular disease from April 2009 to December 2015, an external validation cohort of primary care patients from January 2010 to December 2014. Measurements Age and laboratory predictors measured in the outpatient setting included serum total cholesterol, high-density lipoprotein cholesterol, triglycerides, hemoglobin, mean corpuscular volume, platelets, leukocytes, estimated glomerular filtration rate, and glucose. The ESCADE outcomes were defined as myocardial infarction, stroke, and death from ischemic heart or cerebrovascular disease within five years. Results Sex-specific models were developed and internally validated in two 164-197 women and one 833-147 men. They were well-calibrated, with relative differences less than 1% between mean predicted and observed risk for both sexes. The C-statistic was 0.77 in women and 0.71 in men. External validation in 31,697 primary care patients showed a relative difference less than 14%, and an absolute difference less than 0.3 percentage points in mean predicted and observed risks for both sexes. The C-statistics for the laboratory models were 0.72 for both sexes and were not statistically significantly different from those for the PCEs in women, change in C-statistic, minus 0.01, 95% C, minus 0.03 to 0.01, or men, change in C-statistic, minus 0.01, C, minus 0.04 to 0.02. Limitation Medication use was not available at the population level. Conclusion The Conhart lab models predict a SCADE with similar accuracy to more complex models, such as the PCEs. Next article from Nature Medicine 
Inhibition of the KK2 potassium channel and atrial fibrillation, a randomized phase 2 trial. Existing antiarrhythmic drugs to treat atrial fibrillation, AF, have incomplete efficacy, contraindications and adverse effects, including proarrhythmia. AP 30663, an inhibitor of the KK2 channel, has demonstrated AF efficacy in animals, however, its efficacy in humans with AF is unknown. Here we conducted a phase 2 trial in which patients with a current episode of AF lasting for 7 days or less were randomized to receive an intravenous infusion of 3 or 5 MGKG-1 AP 30663 or placebo. The trial was prematurely discontinued because of slow enrollment during the coronavirus disease 2019 pandemic. The primary endpoint of the trial was cardioversion from AF to sinus rhythm within 90 min from the start of the infusion, analyzed with Bayesian statistics. Among 59 patients randomized and included in the efficacy analyzes, the primary endpoint occurred in 42%, 5 of 12, 55%, 12 of 22, and 0%, 0 of 25, of patients treated with 3 MGKG-1 AP 30663, 5 MGKG-1 AP 30663 or placebo, respectively. Both doses demonstrated more than 99.9% probability of superiority over placebo, surpassing the pre-specified 95% threshold. The mean time to cardioversion, a secondary endpoint, was 47, SD equals 23, and 41, SD equals 24, minutes for 3 MGKG-1 and 5 MGKG-1 AP30663, respectively. AP 30663 caused a transient increase in the QTCF interval, with a maximum mean effect of 37.7 ms for the 5 mgkg-1 dose. For both dose groups, no ventricular arrhythmias occurred and adverse event rates were comparable to the placebo group. AP 30663 demonstrated AF cardioversion efficacy in patients with recent onset AF episodes. KKA2 channel inhibition may be an attractive mechanism for rhythm control of AF that should be studied further in randomized trials. Next article from Lancet. Pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy versus chemotherapy in untreated advanced pleural mesothelioma in Canada, Italy, and France, a phase 3 open-label, randomized controlled trial. Background Pleural mesothelioma usually presents at an advanced, incurable stage. Chemotherapy with platinum pemetrexide is a standard treatment. We hypothesize that the addition of pembrolizumab to platinum pemetrexide would improve overall survival in patients with pleural mesothelioma. Methods We did this open-label, International Randomized Phase 3 Trial at 51 Hospitals in Canada, Italy and France. Eligible participants were aged 18 years or older, with previously untreated advanced pleural mesothelioma, with an Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group performance status score of 0 or 1. Patients were randomly assigned, 1 to 1, to intravenous chemotherapy, cisplatin, 75 mg M2 or carboplatin, area under the concentration time curve 5 to 6 mg per milliliter per minute, with pemetrexide 500 mg M2, every 3 weeks for up to 6 cycles, with or without intravenous pembrolizumab 200 mg every 3 weeks, up to 2 years. 
The primary endpoint was overall survival in all randomly assigned patients. Safety was assessed in all randomly assigned patients who received at least one dose of study therapy. This trial is registered with clinicaltrials.gov, NCT 02784171, and is close to accrual. Findings Between Jan 31, 2017, and SEP 4, 2020, 440 patients were enrolled and randomly assigned to chemotherapy alone, N equals 218, or chemotherapy with pembrolizumab, N equals 222. 333, 76% of patients were male, 347, 79% were white, and median age was 71 years, IQR 6675. At final analysis, database locked December 15, 2022, with a median follow-up of 16 middle.2 months, IQR 8 middle.3 to 27 middle.8, overall survival was significantly longer with pembrolizumab, Median overall survival 17 middle.3 months, 95% C14 middle.4 to 21 middle.3, with pembrolizumab versus 16 middle.1 months, 13 middle.1 to 18 middle.2, with chemotherapy alone, hazard ratio for death 0 middle.79, 95% C0 middle.64 to 0 middle.98, two-sided P equals 0 middle.0324. 3-year overall survival rate was 25%, 95% C20 to 33%, with pembrolizumab and 17%, 13 to 24%, with chemotherapy alone. Adverse events related to study treatment of grade 3 or 4 occurred in 60, 27% of 222 patients in the pembrolizumab group and 32, 15% of 211 patients in the chemotherapy alone group. Hospital admissions for serious adverse events related to one or more study drugs were reported in 40, 18% of 222 patients in the pembrolizumab group and 12, 6% of 211 patients in the chemotherapy alone group. Grade 5 adverse events related to one or more drugs occurred in two patients on the pembrolizumab group and one patient in the chemotherapy alone group. Interpretation In patients with advanced pleural mesothelioma, the addition of pembrolizumab to standard platinum pemetrexate chemotherapy was tolerable and resulted in a significant improvement in overall survival. This regimen is a new treatment option for previously untreated advanced pleural mesothelioma. Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. High-dose methotrexate as CNS prophylaxis in high-risk aggressive B-cell lymphoma. Purpose CNS progression or relapse is an uncommon but devastating complication of aggressive B-cell lymphoma. There is no consensus regarding the optimal approach to CNS prophylaxis. This study was designed to determine whether high-dose methotrexate, HDMTX, is effective at preventing CNS progression in patients at high risk of this complication. Patients and Methods Patients age 18 to 80 years with aggressive B-cell lymphoma and high risk of CNS progression, treated with curative intent anti-CD20-based chemoimmunotherapy, were included in this international, retrospective, observational study. Cause-specific hazard ratios, HRs, and cumulative risks of CNS progression were calculated according to use of HDMTX, with time to CNS progression calculated from diagnosis for all patients, all PTS, and from completion of frontline systemic lymphoma induction therapy, 
for patients in complete response at completion of chemoimmunotherapy, CRPTS. Results 2418 LPTS, HDMTX, N equals 425, and 1616 CRPTS, HDMTX, N equals 356, were included. CNS International Prognostic Index was 4 to 6 in 83.4% all PTS. Patients treated with HDMTX had a lower risk of CNS progression, adjusted HR, 0.59, 95% C, 0.38 to 0.90, P equals 0.014, but significance was not retained when confined to CRPTS, adjusted HR, 0.74, 95% C, 0.42 to 1.30, P equals 0.29, with 5-year adjusted risk difference of 1.6%, 95% C, minus 1.5 to 4.4, all PTS, and 1.4%, 95% C, minus 1.5 to 4.1, CRPTS. Subgroups were underpowered to draw definitive conclusions regarding the efficacy of HDMTX in individual high-risk clinical scenarios. However, there was no clear reduction in CNS progression risk with HDMTX in any high-risk subgroup. Conclusion In this large study, high-risk patients receiving HDMTX had a 7.2% two-year risk of CNS progression, consistent with the progression risk in previously reported high-risk cohorts. Use of HDMTX was not associated with a clinically meaningful reduction in risk of CNS progression. Next article from Journal of Hepatology. Bifidobacterium pseudolongum generated acetate suppresses non-alcoholic fatty liver disease-associated hepatocellular carcinoma. Background and aims. Recent studies have highlighted the role of the gut microbiota and their metabolites in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease-associated hepatocellular carcinoma, NAFLDHCC. We aim to identify specific beneficial bacterial species that could be used prophylactically to prevent NAFLDHCC. Methods The role of Bifidobacterium pseudolongum was assessed in two mouse models of NAFLDHCC, diethylnitrosamine plus a high-fat-slash-high-cholesterol diet or plus a choline-deficient-slash-high-fat diet. Germ-free mice were used for the metabolic study of B. pseudolongum. Stool, portal vein and liver tissues were collected from mice for non-targeted and targeted metabolomic profiles. Two human naffled HCC cell lines, HKCI2 and HKCI10, were co-cultured with B. pseudolongum-conditioned media, BPCM, or candidate metabolites. Results B. pseudolongum was a top-depleted bacterium in mice with naffled HCC. Oral gavage of B. pseudolongum significantly suppressed NAFLD HCC formation in two mouse models, P less than 0.01. Incubation of NAFLD HCC cells with BPCM significantly suppressed cell proliferation, inhibited the G1-S phase transition and induced apoptosis. Acetate was identified as the critical metabolite generated from B. pseudolongum and BPCM, an observation that was confirmed in germ-free mice. Acetate inhibited cell proliferation and induced cell apoptosis in NAFLD HCC cell lines and suppressed NAFLD HCC tumor formation in vivo. B. pseudolongum restored healthy gut microbiome composition and improved gut barrier function. 
Mechanistically, bisutilongum generated acetate reached the liver via the portal vein and bound to GPR43, G-coupled protein receptor 43, on hepatocytes. GPR43 activation suppressed the IL-6, JAK1-STAT3 signaling pathway, thereby preventing NAFLD HCC progression. Conclusions Bisutilongum protected against NAFLD HCC by secreting the anti-tumor metabolite acetate, which reached the liver via the portal vein. Bisutilongum holds potential as a probiotic for the prevention of NAFLD HCC. Incidents and outcomes of acute kidney injury including hepatorenal syndrome and hospitalized patients with cirrhosis in the U.S. background and aims. Acute kidney injury, AKI, in cirrhosis is common and associated with high morbidity, but the incidence rates of different etiologies of Aki are not well described in the U.S. We compared incidence rates, practice patterns, and outcomes across etiologies of Aki in cirrhosis. Methods we performed a retrospective cohort study of 11 hospital networks, including consecutive adult patients admitted with Aki and cirrhosis in 2019. The etiology of Aki was adjudicated based on pre-specified clinical definitions, pre-renal-slash-hypovolemic Aki, hepatorenal syndrome, ARS Aki, acute tubular necrosis, ATN, other. Results A total of 2,063 patients were included, median age 62, IQR 5469, years, 38.3% female, median MELDNA score 26, 19-31. The most common etiology was pre-renal Aki, 44.3%, followed by ATN, 30.4%, and hours Aki, 12.1%, 6.0% had other Aki, and 7.2% could not be classified. In our cohort, 8.1% of patients received a liver transplant and 36.5% died by 90 days. The lowest rate of death was observed in patients with pre-renal Aki, 22.2%, P less than 0.001, while death rates were higher but not significantly different from each other in those with hours Aki and ATN, 49.0% versus 52.7%, P equals 0.42. Using pre-renal Aki as a reference, the adjusted subdistribution hazard ratio, SHR, for 90-day mortality was higher for hours Aki, SHR 2.78, 95% C2.18 to 3.54, P less than 0.001, and ATN, SHR 2.83, 95% C2.36 to 3.41, P less than 0.001. In adjusted analysis, Higher Aki stage and lack of complete response to treatment were associated with an increased risk of 90-day mortality, P less than 0.001 for all. Conclusion Aki is a severe complication of cirrhosis. Ours Aki is uncommon and is associated with similar outcomes to ATN. The etiology of Aki, Aki stage slash severity, and non-response to treatment were associated with mortality. Further optimization of vasoconstrictors for hours Aki and supportive therapies for ATN are needed. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology. Reflux symptoms increase following sleeve gastrectomy despite triage of symptomatic patients to ruin Y gastric bypass. Background and aims. 
Bariatric surgical options in obese patients include sleeve gastrectomy, SG and RUNY gastric bypass, RYGB, which may not be equivalent in risk of postoperative reflux symptoms. We evaluated risk and predictive factors for post-bariatric surgery reflux symptoms. Methods Patients with obesity evaluated for bariatric surgery over a 15-month period were prospectively followed with validated symptom questionnaires, JERK, Dominant Symptom Index, Product of Symptom Frequency and Intensity from 5-Point Likert Scores, administered before and after SG and RIGV. Esophageal testing included high-resolution manometry in all patients, and ambulatory reflux monitoring off therapy in those with abnormal JERK or prior reflux history. Univariate comparisons and multivariable analysis were performed to determine if preoperative factors predicted postoperative reflux symptoms. Results 64 patients, median age 49.0 years, 84% female, median BMI 46.5 kg M2, fulfilled inclusion criteria and underwent follow-up assessment 4.4 years after bariatric surgery. Baseline jerk and dominant symptom index for heartburn were significantly higher in RIGB patients, P less than or equal to 0.04. Despite this, median jerk increased by 2, 0.0 to 4.8, following SG and decreased by 0.5, minus 1.0 to 5.0, following RIGB, P equals 0.02. Jerk became abnormal in 43.8% after SG and 18.8% after RIGB, P equals 0.058. Abnormal jerk improved in 12.5% and 37.5%, respectively, P equals 0.041. In a model that included age, gender, BMI, acid exposure time, and type of surgery, multivariable analysis identified SG as an independent predictor of postoperative heartburn, odds ratio 16.61, p equals 0.024. Conclusions Despite preferential RIGB when preoperative GERT was identified, SG independently predicted worsening heartburn symptoms after bariatric surgery. Safety and efficacy of endoscopic full-thickness resection of upper gastrointestinal lesions using a full-thickness resection device, a systematic review and meta-analysis. Introduction Endoscopic full-thickness resection, EFTR, is a promising technique that allows for a minimally invasive resection of mucosal and submucosal lesions in the gastrointestinal GI tract. The data regarding the efficacy and safety of performing EFTR of upper GI lesions using a full-thickness resection device, FTRD, is limited. Hence, we performed a systematic review and meta-analysis of the studies that evaluated this technique. Methods We performed a comprehensive systematic search of multiple electronic databases and conference proceedings that reported outcomes of EFTR using the FTRD system. The weighted pooled rates of technical success Complete, R0, resection, adverse events, A, and residual or recurrent lesions were analyzed with 95% C using the random effects model. Results 8 studies with a total of 139 patients who underwent EFTR of upper GI lesions were included in the study. The pooled, weighted rate of technical success was 88.2%, 95% C, 81.4-92.7%, I2, 0. The R0 resection rate was 70.7%, 95% C, 
62.5 to 77.8%, I2, 0. Overall A rates were 22.1%, 95% C, 15.8 to 30.1%, I2, 0, however, most of the A's were minor. Of the patients who had follow-up endoscopies, the residual and or recurrent lesion rate was 6.1%, 95% C, 2.4 to 14.4%, I2, 0. Heterogeneity in the analysis was low. Conclusions EFTR using the FTRD seems to be effective and safe with acceptable R0 resection rates and low recurrence rates. Further prospective studies are required to validate our results and to compare various modalities of endoscopic resection with this single-step EFTR device. Next article from Clinical Infectious Diseases Patient Characteristics, Microbiology, and Mortality of Infective Endocarditis After Transcatheter Aortic Valve Implantation Background Infective Endocarditis, E, after transcatheter aortic valve implantation, TAVI, is associated with high mortality and surgery is rarely performed. Thus, to inform on preventive measures and treatment strategies, we investigated patient characteristics, and microbiology of E. after TAVI. Methods Using Danish nationwide registries, we identified patients with E. after TAVI, E. after non-TAVI prosthetic valve, NTPV, and native valve E. Patient characteristics, overall, early, less than or equal to 12 meters, and late E, greater than 12 meters, microbiology, and unadjusted and adjusted mortality were compared. Results We identified 273, 1,022, and 5,376 cases of E after TAVI, E after NTPV, and native valve E. Age and frailty were highest among TAVI E, 4.8%, median age, 82 years, 61.9% frail. Enterococcus SPP. Were common for E after TAVI, 27.1%, and E after NTPV, 21.2%, compared with native valve E, 11.4%. Blood culture negative E was rare in E after TAVI, 5.5%, compared with E after NTPV, 15.2%, and native valve E, 13.5%. The unadjusted 90-day mortality was comparable, but the 5-year mortality was highest for E after TAVI, 75.2% versus 57.2% versus 53.6%. In Cox models adjusted for patient characteristics and bacterial etiology for 1 to 90 days and 91 to 365 days, there was no significant difference in mortality rates. Conclusions Patients with E after TAVI are older and frailer, enterococci and streptococci are often the etiologic agents, and are rarely blood culture negative compared with other E patients. Future studies regarding antibiotic prophylaxis strategies covering enterococci should be considered in this setting. Temporal Trends in Hepatitis C-Related Hospitalizations, United States, 2000-2019 Background Hospitalization burden related to hepatitis C virus, HCV, Infection is substantial. We sought to describe temporal trends in hospitalization rates before and after release of direct-acting antiviral, DAA, agents. Methods 
We analyzed 2000 to 2019 data from adults age greater than or equal to 18 years in the national inpatient sample. Hospitalizations were HCV-related if, 1. Hepatitis C was the primary diagnosis, or, 2. Hepatitis C was any secondary diagnosis with a liver-related primary diagnosis. We analyzed characteristics of HCV-related hospitalizations nationally and examined trends in age-adjusted hospitalization rates. Results During 2000-2019, there were an estimated 1,286-397 HCV-related hospitalizations in the United States. The annual age-adjusted hospitalization rate was lowest in 2019-18.7100-000 population and highest in 2012-29.6100-000 population. Most hospitalizations occurred among persons aged 45 to 64 years, 71.8%, males, 67.1%, white non-Hispanic persons, 60.5%, and Medicaid-slash-Medicare recipients, 64.0%. The national age-adjusted hospitalization rate increased during 2000-2003, annual percentage change, APC, 9.4%, P less than 0.001, and 2003-2013, APC, 1.8%, P less than 0.001, before decreasing during 2013-2019, APC, minus 7.6%, P less than 0.001. Comparing 2000-2019, the largest increases in hospitalization rates occurred among persons aged 55-64 to 64 years, 132.9%, Medicaid recipients, 41.6%, and black non-Hispanic persons, 22.3%. Conclusions Although multiple factors likely contributed, overall HCV-related hospitalization rates declined steadily after 2013, coinciding with the release of DAAs. However, the declines were not observed equally among age, race-slash-ethnicity, or insurance categories. Expanded access to DAA treatment is needed, particularly among Medicaid and Medicare recipients, to reduce disparities and morbidity and eliminate hepatitis C as a public health threat. Next article from Journal of Clinical Rheumatology. Unintentional monotherapy in rheumatoid arthritis patients receiving tofacitinib and drug survival rate of tofacitinib. Objective. To determine the rate of unintentional monotherapy, UM, switching to monotherapy from combination therapy of patients' own volition, in rheumatoid arthritis patients receiving tofacitinib, and to evaluate tofacitinib survival rate. Methods This national, multi-center study included patients' data from the TurkBio registry. Demographics, clinical characteristics, disease duration and activity, comorbidities, and treatments were analyzed. Results Data of 231 rheumatoid arthritis patients, 84.8% female, median age, 56 years or included, 153 were initially prescribed combination therapy and continued to their therapies, 31 were initially prescribed combination therapy but switched to monotherapy on their own volition, UM, 21 were initially prescribed monotherapy and switched to combination therapy, 26 were initially prescribed monotherapy and continued to their therapies. The rate of comorbidities at the time of data retrieval was higher in the UM group than in the combination group, 83.3% versus 60.3%, P equals 0.031.
presence of comorbidities was a significant factor affecting switching to monotherapy, P equals 0.039, odds ratio, 3.29, 95% confidence interval, 1.06 to 10.18. The combination and UM groups did not differ regarding remission rate assessed by disease activity score 28 joint count C reactive protein, 60.5% and 70%, respectively, P equals 0.328. Drug survival rates of the UM and combination groups did not differ. The median drug survival duration of tofacitinib was 27 plus months with 1 and 4 year drug survival rates of 89.6% and 60.2%, respectively, in the UM group. Conclusions Although 13.4% of the study population started monotherapy unintentionally, drug survival and remission rates of the UM and combination groups were not different. Comorbidity was a factor affecting transition from combination therapy to monotherapy. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology. A randomized, double-blind, sham-controlled, clinical trial of auricular vagus nerve stimulation for the treatment of active rheumatoid arthritis. Objective. Preliminary evidence suggests that vagus nerve stimulation, VNS, may have some benefit in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, RA. However, prior studies have been small and or uncontrolled. This study aimed to address that gap. Methods. This randomized, double-blind, sham-controlled trial enrolled patients aged 18 to 75 years with active RA who had failed conventional synthetic disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, MARDs, and were naive to biologic and or targeted synthetic MARDs. All patients received an auricular vagus nerve stimulator and were randomized one-to-one to active stimulation or sham. The primary endpoint was the proportion of patients achieving 20% improvement in American College of Rheumatology criteria. ACR20, at week 12. Secondary endpoints included mean changes in disease activity score of 28 joints with C-reactive protein, DOS28CRP, and Health Assessment Questionnaire Disability Index, HOC-DI. Results. A total of 113 patients, mean age 54 years, 82% female, enrolled, and 101 patients, 89.4%, completed week 12. ACR20 response at week 12 was 25.0% for active stimulation versus 26.9% for sham, difference versus sham, minus 1.9, 95% C, minus 18.8, 14.9, P equals 0.823. The least square mean plus or minus SE change in DOS 28 CRP was minus 0.95 plus or minus 0.16 for active stimulation and minus 0.66 plus or minus 0.16 for sham, P equals 0.201. In Hoc DI it was minus 0.19 plus or minus 0.06 for active stimulation and minus 0.02 plus or minus 0.06 for sham, P equals 0.044. Adverse events occurred in 17 patients, 15%, all were mild or moderate. Conclusion Auricular VNS did not meaningfully improve RA disease activity. If VNS with other modalities is pursued in the future for the treatment of RA, larger, controlled studies will be needed to understand its utility.
Next article from Circulation. Rivaroxaban plus aspirin versus aspirin alone after endovascular revascularization for symptomatic PAD, insights from Voyager PAD. Background. Rivaroxaban plus aspirin compared with aspirin alone reduced major cardiac and ischemic limb events after lower extremity revascularization, LER, and the Voyager PAD. Vascular Outcomes Study of ASA along with rivaroxaban in an endovascular or surgical limb revascularization for peripheral artery disease trial. The effect has not been described in patients undergoing endovascular LER. Methods The Voyager PAD trial randomized 6,564 patients with symptomatic peripheral artery disease to a double-blinded treatment with 2.5 mg of rivaroxaban bid or matching placebo and 100 mg of aspirin daily. The primary efficacy outcome was a composite of acute limb ischemia, major amputation of a vascular pathogenesis, myocardial infarction, ischemic stroke, or cardiovascular death. Results Endovascular LUR occurred in 4,379, 66.7%, patients and surgical LUR in 2,185, 33.3%. Over a three-year follow-up, Rivaroxaban reduced the risk of the primary outcome by 15%, hazard ratio, HR, 0.85, 95% C, 0.76 to 0.96, with an absolute risk reduction of 0.92% at 6 months, and 1.04% at 3 years and a consistent benefit in those receiving endovascular, HR, 0.89, 95% C, 0.76 to 1.03, or surgical LUR, HR, 0.81, 95% C, 0.67 to 0.98, the interaction equals 0.43. For endovascular-treated patients, rivaroxaban reduced the risk of acute limb ischemia or major amputation of a vascular pathogenesis by 30%, HR, 0.70, 95% C, 0.54 to 0.90, P equals 0.005, with an absolute risk reduction of 1.0% at 6 months and 2.0% at 3 years compared with aspirin alone. Among endovascular-treated patients, the median duration of concomitant dual antiplatelet therapy with clopidogrel treatment was 31 days, in turquoise range, 30 to 58. There was a consistent benefit for rivaroxaban regardless of background clopidogrel. Thrombolysis in myocardial infarction major bleeding was significantly higher for the rivaroxaban and aspirin group for the endovascular cohort, HR, 1.66, 95% C, 1.06 2.59, with an absolute risk increase of 0.9% at 3 years with no increase in intracranial or fatal bleeding observed, HR, 0.86, 95% C, 0.40 to 1.87. P equals 0.71. Mortality with rivaroxaban was higher in the endovascular treated patients, HR, 1.24, 95% C, 1.02 to 1.52, although this finding was isolated to specific regions. Conclusions Rivaroxaban added to aspirin or dual antiplatelet therapy after LUR for peripheral artery disease reduces ischemic risk and increases major bleeding without an increased risk of intracranial or fatal bleeding. These benefits are consistent in those treated with endovascular and surgical approaches with significant benefits for major adverse limb events. 
These data support the use of rivaroxaban in addition to aspirin or dual antiplatelet therapy after endovascular intervention for symptomatic peripheral artery disease. Next article from American College of Cardiology Predictors of Outcomes in Mild Pulmonary Hypertension Study Questions What is the impact on prognosis of the 2022 European Society of Cardiology-European Respiratory Society, ESCAPE-ERS, Pulmonary Hypertension, PH, Guidelines on the New Redefined Hemodynamic Threshold, Mean Pulmonary Artery Pressure, PAP, greater than 20 mm Hg and pulmonary vascular resistance, PVR, greater than 2 wood units, WU, for the diagnosis of precapillary pH. Methods Evidence PI UK is a United Kingdom, UK, cohort national study that aims to phenotype and determine drivers of outcome in patients with mild elevations in PAP and PVR. All seven adult tertiary pH centers across the UK were included in this study. Data collected prospectively for the UK National Audit between January 2009 and December 2017 were analyzed. Results The median age of the population was 65, interquartile range, 53 to 73, years. A total of 2,929 patients were included in the study, with 968 patients, 33%, in the PAP less than 21 mm Hg group, 689 patients, 23.5%, in the PAP 21 to 24 mm Hg group, and 1,272, 43.4%, in the PAP greater than or equal to 25 mHg group. In the PAP 21 to 24 mm Hg group, 68.2%, and equals 437, had comorbid lung and or left heart disease, compared to 51.4%, and equals 466, in the PAP less than 21 mm Hg group, and 78.8%, and equals 975, in the stratified MPAP greater than or equal to 25 mHg group. Connective tissue disease, CTD, was present in 37.4%, 35.3%, and 29.6% in the three MPAP groups, respectively. During the observation period, median of 6.1 years, there were 1,383 deaths, 47.2%, 30.8% of them PAP less than 21 mm Hg group, 43.3% of them PAP 21 to 24 mm Hg group, and 61.8% of them PAP greater than or equal to 25 mHg group. On multivariable regression models, the excess mortality in them PAP 21 to 24 mm Hg and greater than 25 mm Hg groups remained significant when compared to them PAP less than 21 mm Hg group, after adjustment of the lung disease, left heart disease, CTD, age, and gender. When analyzing PVR, 1,253, 42.8%, had a PVR less than or equal to 2 Wu, 735, 25.1%, had a PVR greater than 2 less than or equal to 3 Wu, and 941, 32.1%, had a PVR greater than 3 Wu. A stepwise worsening of unadjusted survival with each increase in PVR group, PVR less than or equal to 2 Wu, PVR greater than 2 less than or equal to 3 Wu and PVR greater than 3 Wu, was noted. Excess mortality, compared to PVR less than or equal to 2 Wu, 
remains significant for PVR greater than 2 less than or equal to 3 Wu and PVR greater than 3 Wu, when individually adjusted for lung disease, left heart disease and CTD, age, and gender. When focusing on the MPAP 21 to 24 mm HD population, 315 patients, 45.7%, had a PVR less than or equal to 2 Wu, 231 patients, 33.5%, had a PVR greater than 2 less than or equal to 3 Wu, and 143 patients, 20.8%, had a PVR greater than 3 Wu. The Kaplan-Meier curves reveal that a PVR greater than 2 less than or equal to 3 Wu confers higher mortality compared to a PVR of less than or equal to 2 Wu, but lower than among patients with a PVR greater than 3 Wu. Conclusions Patients referred for pH evaluation who have an PAP 21 to 24 mm Hg or a PVR greater than 2 less than or equal to 3 Wu have an increased mortality compared to those with normal hemodynamics. Safety and tolerability of enclyceron for treatment of hypercholesterolemia in seven clinical trials. Background. Enclyceron is a small interfering RNA agent to lower low-density lipoprotein cholesterol. Objectives. The purpose of this study was to provide reliable evidence to date on the long-term safety profile of enclyceron. Methods. This post hoc analysis comprised patients treated with 300 mg enclyceron sodium or placebo in the completed Orion 1, minus 3, minus 5, minus 9, minus 10, and minus 11 and ongoing Orion 8 trials. Exposure adjusted incidence rates and Kaplan Meier estimates of cumulative incidence of reported treatment emergent adverse events, TEE, abnormal laboratory measurements, and incidence of antidrug antibodies were analyzed. Results. This analysis included 3,576 patients treated with enclyceron for up to 6 years and 1,968 patients treated with placebo for up to 1.5 years, with 9,982.1 and 2,647.7 patient years of exposure, respectively. Baseline characteristics were balanced between groups. Kaplan-Meier analyzes showed that Ts that were serious or led to discontinuation, hepatic, muscle and kidney events, incident diabetes, and elevations of creatine kinase or creatinine accrued at a comparable rate between groups for up to 1.5 years, with similar trends continuing for enclyceron beyond this period. Numerically fewer major cardiovascular events reported as Ts occurred with enclyceron during this period. Treatment-induced antidrug antibodies were uncommon with enclyceron, 4.6%, with few of these persistent, 1.4%, and not associated with greater incidence of T's leading to study drug discontinuation or serious T's. Conclusions Long-term treatment with enclyceron was well tolerated in a diverse population, without new safety signals, supporting the safety of enclyceron in patients with dyslipidemia. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. DI slash clay, a measure consisting of insulin sensitivity, secretion, and clearance, captures diabetic states. Context. Insulin clearance is implicated in regulation of glucose homeostasis independently of insulin sensitivity and insulin secretion. Objective. 
To understand the relation between blood glucose and insulin sensitivity, secretion, and clearance. Methods We performed a hyperglycemic clamp, a hyperinsulinemic euglycemic clamp, and an oral glucose tolerance test, OGTT, in 47, 16, and 49 subjects with normal glucose tolerance, NGT, impaired glucose tolerance, IGT, and type 2 diabetes mellitus, T2DM, respectively. Mathematical analyses were retrospectively performed on this dataset. Results The disposition index, DI, defined as the product of insulin sensitivity and secretion, showed a weak correlation with blood glucose levels, especially in IGT, R equals 0.04, 95% C, minus 0.63 to 0.44. However, an equation relating DI, insulin clearance, and blood glucose levels was well conserved regardless of the extent of glucose intolerance. As a measure of the effect of insulin, we developed an index, designated disposition index slash clearance, DI slash clay, that is based on this equation and corresponds to DI divided by the square of insulin clearance. DI slash clay was not impaired in IGT compared with NGT, possibly as a result of a decrease in insulin clearance in response to a reduction in DI whereas it was impaired in T2DM relative to IGT. Moreover, di clay estimated from a hyperinsulinemic euglycemic clamp, OGTT, or a fasting blood test were significantly correlated with that estimated from two clamp tests, R equals 0.52, 95% C, 0.37 to 0.64, R equals 0.43, 95% C, 0.24 to 0.58, R equals 0.54, 95% C, 0.38 to 0.68, respectively. Conclusion DI slash clay can serve as a new indicator for the trajectory of changes in glucose tolerance. <music> Tissue glucocorticoid metabolism and adrenal insufficiency a prospective study of dual-release hydrocortisone therapy. Background Patients with adrenal insufficiency, AI, require lifelong glucocorticoid, GC, replacement therapy. Within tissues, cortisol, F, availability is under the control of the isozymes of 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase, 11-beta-HSD. We hypothesize that corticosteroid metabolism is altered in patients with AI because of the non-physiological pattern of current immediate release hydrocortisone, IRHC, replacement therapy. The use of a once-daily dual-release hydrocortisone, DRHC, preparation, plenadrin, offers a more physiological cortisol profile and may alter corticosteroid metabolism in vivo. Study Design and Methods Prospective crossover study assessing the impact of 12 weeks of DRHC on systemic GC metabolism, urinary steroid metabolome profiling, cortisol activation in the liver, cortisone acetate challenge test, and subcutaneous adipose tissue, microdialysis, biopsy for gene expression analysis, in 51 patients with AI, primary and secondary, in comparison to IRHC treatment and age and BMI matched controls. Results Patients with AI receiving IRHC had a higher median 24-hour urinary excretion of cortisol compared with healthy controls, 72.1 micrograms slash 24 hours, IQR 43.6 to 124.2, versus 51.9 micrograms slash 24 hours, 
35.5 to 72.3, P equals 0.02, with lower global activity of 11 beta HSD2 and higher 5 alpha reductase activity. Following the switch from IRHC to DRHC therapy, there was a significant reduction in urinary cortisol and total GC metabolite excretion, which was most significant in the evening. There was an increase in 11 beta HSD2 activity. Hepatic 11 beta HSD1 activity was not significantly altered after switching to DRHC, but there was a significant reduction in the expression and activity of 11 beta HSD1 in subcutaneous adipose tissue. Conclusion Using comprehensive in vivo techniques, we have demonstrated abnormalities in corticosteroid metabolism in patients with primary and secondary AI receiving IRHC. This dysregulation of pre-receptor glucocorticoid metabolism results in enhanced glucocorticoid activation in adipose tissue, which was ameliorated by treatment with DRHC. Next article from Neurology. Association of Neighborhood-Level Socioeconomic Factors with Delay to Hospital Arrival in Patients with Acute Stroke Background and Objectives Delivery of Acute Ischemic Stroke, AIS, therapies is contingent on the duration from last known well, LKW, to Emergency Department Arrival Time, EDAT. One reason for treatment and eligibility is delay in presentation to the hospital. We evaluate patient and neighborhood characteristics associated with time from Elkave to EDAT. Methods This was a retrospective observational study of patients presenting to the Yale New Haven Hospital in the AIS code pathway from 2010 to 2020. Patients presenting within 4.5 hours from Elkave who were recorded in the institutional GET with the guideline stroke registry were classified as early while those presenting beyond 4.5 hours were designated as late. Temporal trends and late presentation were explored by univariate logistic regression. Using variables significant in univariate analysis at p less than 0.05, we developed a mixed-effect logistic regression model to estimate the probability of late presentation as a function of patient level and neighborhood, ZIP level characteristics, area deprivation index, ADI, derived from the Health Resources and Services Administration, adjusted for calendar year and geographic distance from the centroid of the zip code to the hospital. Results A total of 2,643 patients with AIS from 2010 to 2020 were included, 63.4% presented late and 36.6% presented early. The frequency of late presentation increased significantly from 68% in 2010 to 71% in 2020, p equals 0.002 and only among non-white patients. Patients presenting late were more likely to be non-white, 37.1% versus 26.9%, p less than 0.0001, arrived by means other than emergency medical services, EMS 32.7% versus 16.1%, p less than 0.0001, have a nice less than 6, 68.7% versus 55.2%, P less than 0.0001, and present from a neighborhood with a higher ADI category, P equals 0.0001, that was nearer to the hospital, median 5.8 versus 7.7 miles, P equals 0.0032. In the mixed model, the ADI by units of 10, odds ratio, or, 1.022, 95% confidence interval, C, 
1.020 to 1.024, non-white race, or 1.083, 95% C1.039 to 1.127, are evil by means other than EMS, or 1.193, 95% C1.145 to 1.124, and in nice less than 6, or 1.085, 95% C1.041 to 1.129, were associated with late presentation. Discussion In addition to patient-level factors, socioeconomic deprivation of neighborhood of residents contributes to delays in hospital presentation for AIS. These findings may provide opportunities for targeted interventions to improve presentation times in at-risk communities. Next article from CHEST. CT scan differences of pulmonary TB according to presence of pleural effusion. Background. Subpleural micronodules and interlobular septal thickening are common CT scan findings in TB pleural effusion. These CT scan features could help us differentiate between TB pleural effusion and non-empyema. Research question. Does the frequency of subpleural micronodules and interlobular septal thickening correlate with the presence of pleural effusion in patients with pulmonary TB? Study design and methods. CT scan findings of pulmonary TB, micronodules and their distribution, parabronchovascular, septal, subpleural, centrolobular and random, large opacity, consolidation slash macronodule, cavitation, tree and buds, bronchovascular bundle thickening, interlobular septal thickening, lymphadenopathy, and pleural effusion were retrospectively analyzed. Patients were divided into two groups according to the presence of pleural effusion. Clinical radiologic findings of the two groups were then analyzed. We presented Benjamini Hochberg critical value for multiple testing correction of CT scan findings, with a false discovery rate of 0.05. Results of a total of 338 consecutive patients diagnosed with pulmonary TB who underwent CT scans, 60 were excluded because of coexisting pulmonary diseases. The frequency of subpleural nodules, 4768, 69% in pulmonary TB with pleural effusion versus 3210, 14% in pulmonary TB without effusion, P less than 0.001, Benjamini Hochberg, BH critical value equals 0.0036, and interlobular septal thickening, 5568, 81% versus 134, 210, 64%, P equals 0.009, BH critical value equals 0.0107, was significantly higher in the group of patients with pulmonary TB with pleural effusion than in the group without pleural effusion. In contrast, tree and buds, 2068, 29% versus 101-210, 48%, P equals 0.007, BH critical value equals 0.0071, were less frequently seen in patients with pulmonary TB with pleural effusion. Interpretation Subpleural nodules and septal thickening were more common in pulmonary TB patients with pleural effusion than in those without pleural effusion. TB involvement of the lymphatics and the peripheral interstitium could be associated with the development of pleural effusion. (music) 
Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Impact of Undiagnosed Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease and Asthma on Symptoms, Quality of Life, Healthcare Use, and Work Productivity. Rationale, a significant proportion of individuals with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, and asthma remain undiagnosed. Objectives, the objective of this study was to evaluate symptoms, quality of life, healthcare use, and work productivity in subjects with undiagnosed COPD or asthma compared with those previously diagnosed, as well as healthy control subjects. Methods This multicenter population based case finding study randomly recruited adults with respiratory symptoms who had no previous history of diagnosed lung disease from 17 Canadian centers using random digit dialing. Participants who exceeded symptom thresholds on the asthma screening questionnaire or the COPD diagnostic questionnaire underwent pre- and post-bronchodilator spirometry to determine if they met diagnostic criteria for COPD or asthma. Two control groups, a healthy group without respiratory symptoms and a symptomatic group with previously diagnosed COPD or asthma, were similarly recruited. Measurements and main results a total of 26,905 symptomatic individuals were interviewed, and 4,272 subjects were eligible. Of these, 2,857 completed pre- and post-bronchodilator spirometry, and 595, 21%, met diagnostic criteria for COPD or asthma. Individuals with undiagnosed COPD or asthma reported greater impact of symptoms on health status and daily activities, worse disease-specific and general quality of life, greater healthcare use, and poorer work productivity than healthy control subjects. Individuals with undiagnosed asthma had symptoms, quality of life, and healthcare use burden similar to those of individuals with previously diagnosed asthma, whereas subjects with undiagnosed COPD were less disabled than those with previously diagnosed COPD. Conclusions, undiagnosed COPD or asthma imposes important unmeasured burdens on the healthcare system, and is associated with poor health status and negative effects on work productivity. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology. Long-term risks of recurrence after hospital discharge for acute lower gastrointestinal bleeding, a large nationwide cohort study. Background and aims. Currently, large, nationwide, long-term follow-up data on acute lower gastrointestinal bleeding, LGIP, are scarce. We investigated long-term risks of recurrence after hospital discharge for LGIP using a large multi-center dataset. Methods. We retrospectively analyzed 5,048 patients who were urgently hospitalized for LGIP at 49 hospitals across Japan, Code Blue J study. Risk factors for the long-term recurrence of LGIB were analyzed by using competing risk analysis, treating death without rebleeding as a competing risk. Results. Rebleeding occurred in 1304 patients, 25.8%, during a mean follow-up period of 31 months. The cumulative incidences of rebleeding at 1 and 5 years were 15.1% and 25.1%, respectively. The mortality risk was significantly higher in patients without of hospital rebleeding episodes than in those without, hazard ratio, 1.42. Of the 30 factors, multivariate analysis showed that shock index greater than or equal to 1, subdistribution hazard ratio, SHR, 1.25, blood transfusion, 
SHR, 1.26, in-hospital re-bleeding, SHR, 1.26, colonic diverticular bleeding, SHR, 2.38, and thenopyridine use, SHR, 1.24, were significantly associated with increased re-bleeding risk. Multivariate analysis of colonic diverticular bleeding patients showed that blood transfusion, SHR, 1.20, in-hospital re-bleeding, SHR, 1.30, and thenopyridine use, SHR, 1.32, were significantly associated with increased re-bleeding risk, whereas endoscopic hemostasis, SHR, 0.83, significantly decreased the risk. Conclusions These large, nationwide follow-up data highlighted the importance of endoscopic diagnosis and treatment during hospitalization and the assessment of the need for ongoing thenopyridine use to reduce the risk of -of out-of-hospital rebleeding. This information also aids in the identification of patients at high risk of rebleeding. Next article is from Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology. Dutsistatin C-based E for changes during gender-affirming hormone therapy in transgender individuals. Background. Men with CKD tend to experience a faster E for decline than women, potentially because of sex hormones. Limited research exists regarding the effect of gender-affirming hormone therapy, GHT, on kidney function. Furthermore, Monitoring kidney function during GOT is challenging because serum creatinine is confounded by body composition. To investigate the relationship between sex hormones and kidney function, we studied the changes of serum creatinine and serum cystatin C, a filtration marker less affected by sex, during one year of GOT. Methods As part of the European Network for the Investigation of Gender Incongruence Study, we measured serum creatinine and serum cystatin C in 260 transgender women and 285 transgender men before and 12 months after initiating GOT. Transgender women received estradiol plus cyproterone acetate, while transgender men received testosterone. Cystatin C-based EFR was calculated using the full age spectrum equation. Results In transgender women, cystatin C decreased by 0.069 mg L, 95% confidence interval, C 0.049 to 0.089, corresponding with a 7 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters 2 increase in EFR. In transgender men, cystatin C increased by 0.052 mg L, 95% C, 0.031 to 0.072, corresponding with a 6 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters 2 decrease in EFR. Creatinine concentrations decreased, minus 0.065 mg slash DL, 95% C, minus 0.076 to minus 0.054, in transgender women and increased, plus 0.131 mg slash DL, 95% C, 0. Next article is from Kidney International Reports. Sex slash gender-based disparities in early transplant access by attributed cause of kidney disease evidence from a multi-regional cohort in the Southeast United States. Introduction We examined sex slash gender disparities across the continuum of transplant care by attributed cause of end-stage kidney disease, ESKD. Methods All adults, 18 to 79 years, and equals 43,548 with new onset ESKD in Georgia, 
North Carolina, or South Carolina between 2015 and 2019 were identified from the United States Renal Data System, USERDS. Individuals were linked to the Early Steps to Transplant Access Registry, ESTAR, to obtain data on referral and evaluation. Waitlisting data was ascertained from USERDS. Using a Cox Proportional Hazards Model, with follow-up through 2020, we assessed the association between sex-slash-gender and referral within 12 months, among all incident dialysis patients, evaluation start within 6 months, among referred patients, and waitlisting, among all evaluated patients, by attributed cause of ESKD, type 1 diabetes mellitus, type 2 diabetes mellitus, hypertension, glomerulonephritis, cystic disease and other. Results Overall, women versus men with type 2 diabetes attributed ESKD were 13%, crude hazard ratio, HR, 0.87, 0.83 to 0.91, 14%, crude HR, 0.86, 0.81 to 0.91, and 14%, crude HR, 0.86, 0.78 to 0.94, less likely to be referred, evaluated, and waitlisted, respectively. Women versus men, with hypertension attributed ESKD were 14%, crude HR, 0.86, 0.82 to 0.90 and 8%, crude HR, 0.92, 0.87-0.98, less likely to be referred and evaluated, respectively, but similarly likely to be waitlisted once evaluated, crude HR, 1.06, 0.97 to 1.15. For all other attributed causes of ESKD, there was no sex-slash-gender disparity in referral, evaluation, or waitlisting rates. Conclusion In the Southeast United States, sex-slash-gender disparities in early access to kidney transplantation are specific to people with ESKD attributed to type 2 diabetes and hypertension. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.